0: Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. Hello, America, and happy Wednesday. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. We've got a great show for you today, and a lot of breaking news that I want to also catch up on But first, let me tell you the lineup. We got a lot of fun today. Congressman Scott Perry, we spent some time with him at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Convention, last week. And he's going to give us the latest on what he's working on to achieve accountability in the United States government, shrink it down, get rid of the bureaucracy. That's really important. But we're going to open the show today with a former FBI whistleblower. He was a contractor in the FBI. He blew the whistle to the Justice Department Inspector General a few years ago, On the Uranium One transaction, that's something I did a lot of reporting on, first with Sarah Carter, then myself, then with Seamus Bruner in the book, Fallout, Uranium One was a a dual transaction in which the United States government, under the Obama-Biden administration, transferred to the Russian government, first, a bunch of assets on the United States. Uranium, under our soil that hadn't been mined, it was owned by... The rights to it were owned by an American company. Those rights got sold to a Russian company called Rosatom, which at the time it was sold, Rosatom was under criminal investigation for bribery and other kickbacks and other hideous bad crimes. uh, The famous whistleblower in that case was the undercover agent, Doug Campbell, who we focus on extensively in our book. But there was a second whistleblower after we started writing the stories and after we revealed that not only did Rosatom get the uranium, unmined uranium in the United States, about 20% of the untapped uranium in the United States under our ground got transferred to Rosatom, the Russia company, but also billions of dollars of guarantees that Russian uranium would be bought by U.S. electric companies operating nuclear power plants, basically putting our electric supply and our nuclear power plants at the mercy of Vladimir Putin in Russia. All of that came out. After that came out, this gentleman, Nate Kane, stepped forward. He was an FBI contractor with cybersecurity and other information. He went to the inspector general. Much of what he's told the inspector general remains secret. We've not been able to get it. Senator Grassley and other people have tried for a long time to get a classified annex release, but it hasn't come out yet. But Nate Kane had a profound effect. Then he got raided by the FBI just for coming forward. Nothing happened to him. Of course, he was cleared. He read till he got his property back. But Nate Kane has decided after all he's been through, first as a military member, then as a FBI whistleblower, then raided by the FBI, then working with the inspector general as a credible whistleblowing witness, he has decided to run for Congress, to come to Washington and continue to make a difference like he's been trying throughout his entire career. Nate Kane's going to join us at the top of the show to tell us why he's running for West Virginia Congressional District 2 That's the seat held by Republican Alex Mooney, who's now going to run for the U.S. Senate, challenge Joe Manchin in the great state of West Virginia. Nate Cain is running. He's going to tell us why, and he's going to bring us up to date on all that happened between him and the FBI. A lot of crazy stuff went on, and believe it or not, three, four years later, we still don't know everything that Nate Cain provided to the United States government. He's going to give us a little tease of what was going on. In that whistleblower case, we'll learn a little bit more today, probably not a whole lot because of the restrictions on the case and what's been known. But again, it involved Uranium One, the Clinton Foundation, and so many more. We're going to get more of that to you, hopefully, over the next few weeks. But Nate Kane's going to open up the show. Then we're going to go to Congressman Scott Perry, who, of course, has so much to be working on right now. He's on the Weaponization Subcommittee. He's doing a lot on the COVID-19 origins. That's a very important case. He's got us covered on many different fronts. And so we're going to talk about that. We had Amanda and I had a wonderful conversation with him. And then we're going to bring on one of the 2024 presidential candidates. No, not Donald Trump. We had him on recently. No, not Nikki Haley. We had her on last week. Perry Johnson, a a Michigan businessman, is running for president for the Republican nomination for president. We caught up with him at CPAC, had a great conversation with him. A lot of interesting stuff he was talking about. Perry Johnson going to join us. In the third block of the show, where Amanda Head and I talked to him about why he's running, what is his focus, particularly the economy, businessman, economy, what he would do different than Donald Trump or Nikki Haley or the other, Ron DeSantis or the others, Vivek Ramaswamy, how he's different than those and hopes to make an impression on voters. We're going to have that in the third block of the show. So a great show, starting with former FBI whistleblower and now congressional candidate Nate Kane of the Uranium One fame. He was a whistleblower from the Uranium One time Then we're going to bring in Scott Perry, Congressman Scott Perry, and we're going to finish up with, yeah, you got it right, Perry Johnson, the current presidential candidate seeking the Republican nomination for president in 2024 against Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Those are the... Declared candidates, A lot of people think Mike Pompeo and Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and many others may join as well. But we're going to have all three of those today. We'll be right back to kick off the show with former whistleblower and current congressional candidate Nate Kane right after this. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay up letters. Millions, I say. IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash news. That's tnusa.com slash news.
1: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way?
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. A few years ago, a lot of you remember the work I did along with Sarah Carter and many other good reporters at The Daily Caller on what was known as Uranium One, a transfer of some significant uranium assets inside the United States to the Russians. Yeah, the same Russians who now have invaded Ukraine for a second time. This transfer raised a lot of concerns. The Obama administration with Hillary Clinton at the helm approved the transfer despite some pretty significant national security concerns. Well, in the course of that, a very interesting whistleblower emerged. His name was Nate Kane. He was a contractor for the FBI, and he provided some really significant information to the Department of Justice, Inspector General, to Senator Grassley's office, Senator Graham's office. And it really accentuated just how bad a transaction this was and how much information the FBI knew about the Clinton Foundation that it had not acted on. Well, Fast forward to the spring of 2023, Nate Kane is now going to make his first run for office. He is a candidate, a Republican candidate, to succeed Congressman Alexander Mooney, Alex Mooney. He's been on the show several times uh, in the House District in West Virginia. Mooney is actually running for the U.S. Senate seat against Joe Manchin, and so Nate Kane is gonna run for that very red seat in West Virginia. Well, we're lucky enough right now to be joined by Nate to talk about his candidacy and so much more. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you very much
1: for having me on.
0: You have this extraordinary history. You've served your government, I believe, in the military, then in the FBI as a contractor, as a whistleblower, and now you're you're going to make your first run for office. Before we get into the great, rich history of Uranium One and your whistleblowing, what motivated you to get in the game and want to join Congress and go to the swamp and try to fix things here?
1: Well, to be honest with you, I had no desire to do that. Um, I have a very successful company. Everything is going great in my life. I finally have my anonymity back there's literally no reason for me to want to do this other than um, I spent some time praying uh, and asking God to raise up righteous men and women to run for office. And during that time of prayer, I heard a a voice in my head say, what about you? And so I spent some time uh, first arguing and kind of negotiating and uh, eventually came to the conclusion that this is something that I believe, um, you know, that God wants me to do. And I think that there is a need for people who have an extraordinary level of integrity and bravery to bring out and expose some of the corruption that we are seeing right now uh, in in uh, uh, within our government. And I think that uh, we need people that are going to be willing to stand up and who, who have basically, they're, they're not interest, they're, they don't have, they're not beholden to the special interests. And so the fact that I have no, background in politics, I think, actually will help me, uh, because I can go in there and actually do the things that need to be done, and I don't desire to be there forever. So um, hopefully I'll go in, be able to do some things, and then get out and go back to private life.
0: Yeah, that's always the type of person that voters get excited about. Someone who doesn't want to be a career politician just brings their life experiences, much like our founding fathers did when they first got involved in Congress and done all the things. Nate, there are so many issues in the country right now. There's the weaponization of law enforcement, which I think you probably uh, helped expose a little bit in your whistleblower's role. There's the state of the economy. There's the state of the government and its extraordinary reach, including into West Virginia, where the U.S. government lost a major Supreme Court case last year. What are the most important issues that you're going to run on and that are connecting
1: with voters as you begin your campaign? So um, we have actually been able to, uh, we've driven all 27 counties of this district, and we've talked to many people. We're you know, going to different meetings and, and, um, and meeting with various people. But one of the things that, that I found is they are connecting with me on these issues that I'm running on. And the three major pillars of my campaign are, first and foremost, the Constitution. It is what everyone who works for the government, everybody who is in the military and every uh politician, they swear an oath uh, to um, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I think that there are many who have failed to do that. Now, the reason that that uh, what they're you know what the Constitution protects is it protects our civil rights, our God-given rights. These aren't rights that are given to us by government, but they're supposed to be protected by government. And what I've seen is I've seen a complete. Um, Uh, Just a a totally casting off of any restraint by by authoritarians that want to abuse their power. Um, We've seen this uh, with, you know, most, you know, most recently the Twitter files that have come out that have totally revealed that the FBI has been paying money uh, in order to suppress news stories and suppress uh, accounts. Um, There's also we see this with January 6, where you have people that have been in jail for two years, many of them uh, not even having their day in court and, uh, and not, giving, uh, not being given bail when our Constitution and our Bill of Rights actually states that we have a right to those things. And so it's clear to me that that whole thing was all about intimidating the American people so that they would not, they would not utilize their First Amendment right to, to uh, peaceably um, you know, address their grievances to their government you know, and assemble. And that, that's the kind of thing that, to me, is uh, extremely dangerous. Um, of course, I'm very aware of how we're being spied on. I'm very aware of how we're being spied on by proxy. Um, while I was with the mar Cyber, I was part of a cyber protection team and detached to NSA. So I was read on to all of the uh, spy programs and stuff that we have uh, within, in regards to surveillance. And I'm very aware of, of a lot of that type of thing. And at that time, there were some safeguards to protect American citizens' rights. And Obama did away with those on his last month in office. And that was I that was so that they could set up Donald Trump and and be able to do reverse targeting and all of that sort of thing. So um, I want to address these things. The the FBI and the DOJ clearly seem to be uh, politicized uh, towards one party. Uh, That is a dangerous place to be as a country. And I think that uh, if we don't address this and and actually hold people accountable, it can't just be here. I think there need to be trials. Um, But I think people need to be held accountable And that is the only way that we save our nation. So that's number one. Number two is national security. We have a major problem where we are seeing our munitions that are being, um, you know, basically given out to uh, the Ukraine. And uh, I just saw a report recently that says that we don't have what we need now to fight a two-front war if we ever had to be in that situation. They've weakened our military with woke ideology and and indoctrination. Uh, They have um, also – and they just kicked out some of the best – you know, people in our military because they didn't want to be an experimental uh, guinea pig, you know, with this COVID vaccine. And that is, um, that's another thing that they're doing is they they weaken the military. They also have drained the uh, National Strategic Reserve. And, uh, you know, and and this has been done uh, to sell oil to China. It's also been done to, um, you know, to manipulate the market so that uh, to bring the prices down because the policies of the Biden administration have been jacking the prices of of gasoline up and everybody feels it but yet so we'll shut down oil production here in the united states but we'll buy it from communists down in venezuela i have a major problem with that so that second part is is important because without those two things the third part which is prosperity will be short-lived and there are things within west virginia um, that are are unique to west virginia we have a massive uh, oil and gas and um and uh, coal fields that are, you know, beneath the ground of western West Virginia, and I see an opportunity to revitalize West Virginia and actually uh, grow, you know, good-paying, long-term jobs in our states. In our state, by by building refineries and actually developing the these uh, natural resources into products that can be sold, we have the supply chain. So I understand something about risk management because of my job in cybersecurity, supply chain. Is a very very large risk factor, and so when we build these plants that you know to create batteries and and green energy things and stuff like that, where it relies on rare earth minerals from China, the problem is if we end up in a trade war with China, that business will be out of business. But if we invest in things that actually we control the supply chain for, we can actually create jobs that will last forever or for a lifetime, and and that's something that I think would really uh, revitalize uh, West Virginia and actually, um, you know, put us. Uh, in a very strong position uh, as a state. So those are the three um, major pillars. Uh, There's obviously other things that I think, too, that we need to work on in, in West Virginia. And a lot of these issues are not issues that are dealt with at the federal level. Let me ask you about
0: this, because it's hard a few years ago for me to have said something like this. West Virginia is a border state, but it is now. We see the fentanyl flowing in. It's clearly just a result of the Border control that the cartels now have and trafficking people in and controlling that. We just had this horrific incident this week with the death of the South Carolina families that went down there just to get a medical procedure. Tell us how important stopping fentanyl is to West Virginia, to your constituents, and how much more people in West Virginia feel attuned to the border now that it affects every state, make every state a border
1: state. Well, West Virginia is very, um, it's kind of a unique Uh, has a unique situation in regards to the border, because while we may not have, um, you know, the kind of problem with, uh, you know, illegals coming in and taking jobs and things like that, like they see in Southern California, we do have a massive problem with fentanyl here. And it is, um, I believe we have the highest uh, per capita rate of overdoses on fentanyl uh, in the United States and everywhere i go i can't tell you how many people i've i've asked and I, you know and i'd say how, how many people in this room have been affected by fentanyl and the hands come up and there's just so many people that have been affected and the the reality is is that um well yes there's a lot that we need to do here and i think a lot of this has to do with uh you know the 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 changes that have happened in our culture and the um you know the lack of of god in our family and our lives and our daily lives i think that what we see is that we have a huge problem where we are being poisoned and it is coming across the border. Um, the, the Chinese government or there you know, are companies in China that are producing the precursor chemicals and they are uh, selling those directly to the cartels in Mexico uh, who are making these drugs and they are sending it across the border. The current administration has abdicated their role in protecting our country against this invasion. And the problem is is that... Um, uh, honestly, we're at a point now where I think you know the United States needs to consider uh, very strict sanctions on both China and Mexico in regards to uh, this you know fentanyl and these um, cartels. But I don't see Mexico as having the willpower or even the resources to go after these uh, these these cartels. And I think it it may require some sort of military intervention on our part to go after them and take them out because they are absolutely. I think now. I think I heard that the uh, fentanyl is now the leading cause of death for you know people, young people under a certain age, and I can't remember that exact age, but that's insane, and we've got to stop this.
0: Yeah, no, it's pretty extraordinary. Let's go back to the moment where you became a whistleblower. You, you're a cybersecurity digital expert contractor for the FBI. You previously served in the military. Uh, these stories start coming out about. Uranium One, the fact that maybe the U.S. government had not fully prosecuted or investigated the ties between this Russian uranium company called Rosatom and the Clinton Foundation at a time when the Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration were approving these uranium transactions to the government. And there's two things that a lot of people fail to appreciate the full amount of Uranium One. Everyone thinks, what well, was the sale of the uranium under our ground to the Russians, that was the most valuable thing. And while that was very important to the Russians, the bigger deal that the Russians got, and I wrote my whole book on this called Fallout with my good colleague, uh, Seamus Bruner, the Russians also got something way more valuable, cash deals with American utilities to supply uranium to the nuclear power plants in America for decades. So America became more reliant on Russian uranium, something that feels more uncomfortable now that we have the Ukraine war going on. But that is the big transaction. You're sitting there, you, you see the news headlines coming out that there's some stuff going on here. And I think if I remember correctly, you learn, or you're in possession of, transactions that occurred between the Clinton Foundation, bank transactions between the Clinton Foundation and some of these questionable actors. Tell us what caused you to blow the whistle and go to the Justice Department IG.
1: So I had heard some of these stories. In fact, um, you know, I was uh, reading your articles in The Hill, I think at the time, and uh, and Sarah Carter, I think she was with Axios or something like that at the time. But I had seen some of these um, stories and I had been reading them and um, and I, I was very concerned, but you know, I, I did not really, that wasn't what drove me to go looking for anything. What drove me to go look for stuff was I walked into the office one day and there was a conversation that was happening uh, where my government uh, supervisor um, had shared that there was a, a problem uh, or that there was a, a, a system that we all used that where they would dictate and they would capture Conversations, and then it would get, you know, uh, recorded. And this is all because of the records management requirements in the FBI. And that people had seen something that didn't get properly compartmentalized—a conversation that had words like treason, and uh, you know, this is too big, and this could bring down the government, and uh, and and we need to make this go away and cover it up. Those types of conversations were happening in relationship to Hillary Clinton and the crimes that were being investigated. Now. I went and I looked for that because I couldn't believe it and I wanted to see for myself. I never did find those things, but what I found was a, you know, a trove of uh, suspicious activity reports that basically showed the money laundering that was going on. And and these were categorized by you know, different field offices that were working these cases. They had case numbers and there was uh, money laundering, securities and exchange fraud, public corruption and terrorism financing all of which were being looked at by various field offices. And so at the first, I thought, well, you know, that's just rumor. They're looking at this. They're going to bring an indictment, clearly, because these were um, these were FinCent uh, reports that actually had uh, analyst notes in them. They had already given it a high, um, you know, uh, high credibility rating. So, you know, I thought, I thought they were going to bring an indictment. And it wasn't until uh, Comey came out in front of the FBI headquarters and made the comment that, and of course, it was related to the the email server. But he said no reasonable prosecutor would you know would bring uh, you know a charge against Hillary over this stuff. And I, I knew right then and there they they were the, the fix was in. They were going to cover it up uh, because there was no number one. He had no authority to do that as the uh, the director of the FBI. Their job is to investigate, not to make a determination of prosecution, but also. The fact that he was making that statement clearly told me that they had no intention of charging her with anything. And so at that point, I had a decision to make, and I I prayed about it long and hard because I knew um, I would be throwing away the highest paid job I ever had. Um, I knew that I would be putting myself right in the crosshairs of the FBI and Hillary Clinton. And I knew that um, uh, also that it would potentially, you know, and I found out later as I started. looking into things that it would also put me in danger of, you know, Russian intelligence agents. And so uh, I had to make that decision. I went home, I think that night, and I talked to my wife as we were laying in bed. And I just said, honey, I, I think I'm going to need to blow the whistle on the FBI. And her first words to me were, why does it have to be you? <laughs> and I totally get that. And uh, but, you know, I told her, I said, because if it's not me, who is it going to be? And I said, you know, what if God put me here in the FBI for this reason? And, and I don't want to stand before him someday and know that I blew it when he put me there, you know, to do the right thing. So I ended up uh, praying about it with her, and, and then she, you know, came fully on board to support me in this. And uh, and so I you know, started making you know provisions and plans to get this information into the hands of um, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And what ended up happening was um, as I... I made my first my first uh disclosure to uh to the hipsey uh via a senior staff member to devin nunez uh He gave me a a um an app and uh, code to be able to contact him, but he asked me to go back in and get more specifically stuff related to uranium one particularly they were looking for Russian intelligence and anything that um that sh- or you know any intelligence the FBI had on the Russians that would show their intent or their knowledge of what they were doing in terms of trying to infiltrate our uranium supply chain, uh, prior to the CFIUS approving the purchase of uranium one or yeah, the, the purchase of uranium one by Rosatom. So I ended up going back in, I got those documents. I came out on my last day and I tried to contact them, but I got cut off. And so I got stuck with the thumb drive. So then I had to contact a lawyer and go through the long process of the intelligence community whistleblower protection act. And I, I got protection under that, um, with, uh, Uh, Horowitz, uh, he was a a stand-up guy um, when it went up to uh, Jeff Sessions to be reviewed. Jeff Sessions refused to give it a credibility rating, which he's required to under the law. And Horowitz, uh, he said, look, you know, this is not right. And he says, this is important information. I'm going to go and review it, and and I will give it a credibility rating. And so he did. And then when we tried to take it to the committees, the committees refused initially to take it from me because – they didn't, I wasn't willing to give them my name. I had a code name, MC Pota. And I honestly, I I didn't trust these people um, to not leak my name to the, you know, to the the press. And so, um, and it wasn't necessary for me to say anything or testify because all the information was right there in these documents. But when they refused to take the documents from me, we went back to Horowitz and Horowitz actually um, agreed to take these documents on my behalf to both these committees and, you know, himself. And so I think his senior staff member um, ended up delivering them to both the HPSI and the Sissy, And so that is, you know, how it ended up getting there. And of course, several months later, um, the FBI thanked you, you know, thanked me for my, my service to my country by raiding my home, taking all of my electronics, ensuring I lost my job at the VA and, uh, and just, you know, putting us through hell for, you know, for um, a good couple of years, you know, and, and it it, uh, it was a very traumatic and stressful you know situation in my life. Um, of course, that somebody leaked my name and leaked the story to uh, I think the New York Times, and um, and then we got a call. My lawyer got a call from the Daily Caller, and uh, they must have had a spy or somebody up there, you know, in the New York Times. but so they said, hey, we heard that New York Times is going to publish a hit piece on uh, Nate Kane and uh, your client. Would you like to give us you know a first crack at the story and and you know we will let you get your side out so that's what ended up happening and so you know of course you know we were kind of backed into a corner and my my lawyer um he ended up uh, giving an interview on my behalf and and within twenty four hours I went from being somebody who had two people following me on twitter to being um uh you know all over the international news and having you know my name you know everywhere and it was a very uh, surreal and and scary, you know, quite frankly, uh, experience. I bet that's
0: right. There's no doubt about it. Well, there is so much more that we're going to dig into, Nate, and we're going to be following your campaign closely. So many Americans appreciate what you did stepping into the void to put a spotlight on what happened. And of course, we know the consequences that almost all whistleblowers face. Uh, the good news is, you're going to be coming to Washington, hopefully, to make a difference in this country and begin to change some of those things that you highlighted in your own work. It's a great honor to to talk with you on, on air. I, I'm sure we're going to get you back on real soon.
1: Thank you. thank you. It's been an honor to talk with you. And for anybody listening that wants to learn more about my campaign, they can go to my campaign website at the number 4 wvcom
0: That sounds great, Nate. We'll have a lot of people checking that out, and I'll make sure to post it on Twitter as well. All right, folks, don't go anywhere when we come back. Scott Perry, congressman from Pennsylvania and the president and head of the Freedom Caucus in the House. He joins us right after these messages.
2: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
0: When I cover Congress and I think of impact, this next guest comes to mind every time. He's the chairman of the Freedom Caucus. He's a man that's always on a mission making a change in Congress. He is the congressman from the great state of Pennsylvania. He is Scott Perry, congressman. Great to have you back on the show.
3: Well, it's great to be with you, Amanda. And John, thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: It's a great honor always to have you on the show. Sir, I want to start with something. You have always been a champion of limited government. Joe Biden said, give me a bigger government. I'll make bigger fixes The transportation department can't seem to fix anything, airlines, railways, they don't even seem to care about the people when they're impacted by their negligence or incompetence. Uh, Is this the ultimate example to teach people about the failure of big government?
3: Well, it sure should be, and, and I know that many of us, and rightly so, characterize these as failures of the federal transportation system, but understand, while they're failures to us, This administration and the left in general sees these as opportunities, opportunities for more control. And so they're sometimes quite literally happy when the system crashes because then they say, well, you know how we fix that is adding more government to it. And, of course, we know that's not the answer. But so many times, uh, you know, since we pay the high taxes, these agencies show up and we think that they're going to save us. It's not the case. These are absolute failures. This is incompetence. It is unacceptable. And it's a reason why we need to scrutin every, scrutinize every single level of government and every single agency, because we're sure paying a mighty price for these things, yet they don't deliver when we need them to.
4: Yeah, great point.
2: Yes, sir. As Thomas Jefferson said, most bad government grows out of too big government or something to that effect. I'm sure I bastardized <laughs> it to some degree. But I wanted to ask you, speaking of too big government, I saw a very doomsday headline this morning from... A very different news publication that you are ready to evict agencies from their office space. Can you tell our audience about that?
3: (laughs) Well, look, um, we look at the leases of all these federal agencies and certainly since COVID, many of these uh, employers are working remotely. Why are we paying lease for lease space when the employees don't show up? And as importantly, when, uh, when Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and when Jamie Comer, the chairman of the Oversight Committee, are issuing subpoenas, and these folks either won't produce documents or won't show up, well, okay, then, then we have a tool in our chest, which means that you don't need the office space, apparently.
0: Yeah. Such common sense. Uh, most Americans are nodding their head right now in agreement. Um, Congressman, there were reports yesterday that the CBO chief briefed Congress and said we are in a debt crisis. And we're not talking about the debt ceiling. We're talking about the long term trajectory of debt in America. Do you think that message cut through to Democrats? What are we going to be able to accomplish in the next budget round talks to get the debt going in the opposite direction, uh, direction shrinking?
3: Well, look, I know the CBO said that we're going to add these trillions upon trillions of dollars in the next 10 years on the on the current trajectory, but quite honestly, we've seen that. I mean, the, the President Biden raised it $5 trillion essentially himself, so if Democrats are going to get it, it'd be the first time I saw him get it, and I'd, look, I'd be happy about that. But we absolutely need to change the trajectory, and it'd be great if Democrats would recognize that we don't need all this spending, that we can't afford it, and people will say, well, look, all we need is more money money. We're taking in record revenue. The federal government's taking in record revenue right now, but in 2019, we were spending $4.5 trillion, which we couldn't afford, and, and that was pre-COVID. Now, post-COVID, Spending six and a half trillion and, and they don't recognize and don't want to acknowledge that, you know, we're, COVID is over, right? Even the president acknowledged that the pandemic is over, yet they still want to spend the six and a half trillion dollars. The American taxpayer simply doesn't have it. Our economy simply doesn't create that much, that much money for the government to take from us and then spend on programs that we don't need and leases that we don't need.
2: That's right. so important. Sir, you are there at CPAC. You were on a panel this morning called Congress Learns the Art of the Deal. It seems like Republicans have a thing or two to teach about that because in this short tenure with you guys in control, you've already gotten Democrats to come over to your side on a number of issues, most importantly, and most recently, China. Um, Talk to us about that panel this morning and, and some of the things you talked about.
3: Well, we talked about just Congress in general, and the things that are going wrong with the country. But the big theme is, is that when Republicans, when conservatives, when when common sense Americans fight for something and stand up for something, they can win. But so often we just surrender. We just give in. We give in before the fight happens and we cannot do it. The country is in peril. It's heading in the wrong direction. It's heading there at a more a faster pace than, than most people are, have ever seen before in their lives and they're concerned about it. And we all have a part to play in that, whether it's a member of Congress that's voting on things or whether it's constituents that visit, visit their school board meetings or call their members of Congress and say, hey, Uh, You know, I don't want you voting for this or why did you vote that way or, you know, what's happening in my own town with the curriculum that my my children are being taught. And so that is the art of the deal. And the first part of the art of the deal is showing up for the deal.
0: Yeah, that's it. How about that? That would be a change. No doubt about it. Um, Congressman, uh, it seems now that Nancy Pelosi's iron fist is gone. and The thumb isn't on the scale that we're learning that Democrats shared some of the same concerns you and others have had about China, about China proofing the economy. Uh, is there a little bit of liberation there where finally Democrats are able to vote maybe how they feel rather than how Nancy Pelosi told them to feel?
3: well i sure hope so and look this is the issue where democrats and republicans absolutely need to be aligned you know that diplomacy goes to the to the water's edge and we all got to be for america especially uh, when opposing the the kind uh, communist party of china and so in the past where the democrats especially under under uh speaker pelosi paid a lot of lip service to fighting china uh, the Communist Party of China, their actions didn't really match up to that. I'm hoping that this new committee and this newfound agreement against the oppression of the Communist Chinese Party is actually real and, not, and it will transcend rhetoric and actually take the form of action. And as you know, I've got a bill that I've had for numerous sessions now to label the Communist Party of China a transnational criminal organization, which they are, and that would be real action.
2: Congressman, we've just got about 45 seconds left. I wanted to ask you, there has been a very public game of tug of war for your cell phone data. Um, I think for the American people, they see something like this, this happening to you who has a legitimate claim of constitutional protection, and they think if they can do it to Congressman Scott Perry, they can do it to me.
3: Well, they're right to think that uh, they're exactly right to think that way. And look, it's not just me. You look at Mark Houck in Philadelphia Brian. who said, you know, he was a, he's a protester that they wanted to arrest. He said he would turn himself in, yet they showed up armed at his house early in the morning to break the door down. You look at Scott Smith in Loudoun County, Virginia, who went to talk to his school board about his daughter being sexually assaulted uh-huh. on school grounds and they arrested him. It's not just me. It's the weaponization of this federal uh, government against all citizens. It's not the way it's supposed to be. They're fed up with it.
0: All right, folks, don't go anywhere. We still got one more big interview. Perry Johnson, a Republican running for the presidential nomination in 2024 from Michigan. He's going to
4: join us right after this commercial break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
0: Welcome back, everybody. Our next guest has been a businessman, a great author, and now he adds a new title to his chapter. He is a presidential candidate in 2024. Joining us right now, Perry Johnson. Perry, great to have you on the show. Well, I am so delighted to be here. Thank you. It's a great honor. I know that everything in this country starts with the strength of our economy. That is a core message of your presidential campaign. Tell us what's resonating as you go out and talk to everyday Americans.
5: When I talk to Americans and ask them the number one problem we have in America today, they say it's inflation. What they have to realize is that the reason we have inflation is that the government is spending all this money. For 20 years, they tried to get the inflation rate above 2%, and they struggled. But now the government goes out there and spends trillions of dollars. In fact, an extra two trillion more than they ever collect each year. When you do something like that, of course you have inflation. So when you go out and you spend $4.59 for a dozen eggs, instead of $2, it's because of Biden. When you go out there and have to spend $3 for a gallon of gas, instead of $1.75, it's because of Biden. And today you know the interest rate to buy a new home on a 30-year mortgage is 7.1%. Yeah. yeah. Now, it was 2.75 two years ago. I know. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I happen to own a mortgage company. Actually, it was started by my son, who was 17. 17 years old, right? Amazing. That's amazing. Amazing. Yes. And he's now, uh, he's uh, in his first year at Michigan State. But he's now a senior, actually, because he have these AP courses, so he passed out.
2: Fantastic.
5: Keep in mind that in America today, we have to keep the American dream alive. That's right. Because I grew up with nothing. I mean, I started with nothing. My parents couldn't pay for my college. I, in fact, was getting eviction notices in grad school because I couldn't pay my rent. I had my electricity shut off. But you know, I got my first job at Warner, saw the opportunity, and I brought quality to companies the last 35, 40 years. And Perry Johnson Registrar's and Perry Johnson Laboratory Accreditation, now, literally, Are one of the largest in the entire world. Right. And I have been bringing quality to companies all over the world. In fact, I think we're in 61 countries now. And I I live the American dream. I have the most wonderful wife on the planet, three wonderful kids, and I want everybody to have a chance to have that dream. But they're not going to be able to do that if you have somebody like Biden spending this ridiculous amount of money because we're going to have to pay for it. Yeah, that's it. You're right. It's our pockets. That's right. I don't know how many people are really happy going out there and paying these exorbitant fees for everything they buy just because the government wants to spend all their money. Right. Um, I ever wrote a book, Two Cents to Save yep, America. Yeah, got it right here. It's a very simple concept. Right now the government gets a budget and their main goal is to spend every penny of that budget. (laughs) They go out of their way. And it's so ridiculous because the last four months they're trying to see how much they can pay for everything and if it's not enough, they boost the price. I say, let's do the opposite. What we're gonna do is cut that budget on all discretionary spending by 2% a year. Very simple, two cents in every dollar. And that way we can keep our American way of life so we continue to be the greatest country the world has ever known. Common sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's just common sense. (laughs) Think about it. The
2: American people now are in a very different place than they were under President Trump. We experienced record prosperity, record low unemployment across the board. Our economy was booming. And I think a lot of Americans are starting to make the connection between the economy and everything else, most notably crime. And I very serendipitously turned to a page in your book where you talk about how in high school they should emphasize trades in addition to the college track when you look at crime skyrocketing across america it's a lot of young people who don't have a purpose in life and they are they may be unemployed how do you how do you implement something like that with our current education system encouraging them to go into more trades instead of just immediately going for that bachelor's degree
5: Well, actually, it isn't so much they're going for the bachelor's degree. I think everybody has to recognize that we go to college so that we can have a better life. And unfortunately, when you're in elementary school and high school, they don't teach you the real key to success. And the key to success is to find something that people need. Now, if you have a, a degree, for example, in philosophy, and you go to try to get a job, yeah, good luck with that. You're not. Your chances of getting a greater future are much less than if you go and get a degree in accounting. Right. So you have to recognize that in our colleges, we do have a problem because they have had all this money funneled into them. Right. In 19, it was 1965 that the government passed a bill where they guaranteed all loans right once that happened you had 17 year olds borrowing money when they have no idea what it's like to pay back now I had a student loan so I'm not going to go saying student loans are bad right I'm gonna say what happened is that the student loans were given out without paying any attention to the fact that the colleges were increasing their costs. right do you know that right now when you go to Michigan State University, which is where my son goes, it is 500 a credit hour. In 1979, it was $29.50 a credit hour. If, it, if that had gone up at the rate of inflation, right. it would be $100 a credit hour. Now think about this. That's Just, unbelievable. And our colleges are going bonkers with their expenses. Yep. I mean, in so many different ways. And not only are the administrative costs so high, they build the, all these buildings, and then you understand that you have some professors that teach one course.
0: Right, that's all they do. Three hours. Yeah,
5: three hours that's a week. That's their job. And they teach for two semesters. And I think in some of the colleges they get a sabbatical every seventh year, so they don't even have to do that. Uh, and we that's pay crazy. an average salary of one hundred and forty-eight thousand dollars a, a year. It's a racket. So I, I say what we should do there in order for them to get these guaranteed services where the government's guaranteeing the money, the colleges have to demonstrate that they're cutting their cost. Because there's been nothing in this country that's gone up more than the cost of college tuition. Medical care is also out out of sight, isn't it? Oh yeah, exactly. When I first started insuring my people at work, I think it was 1986, it was $18 a month. $18
0: a month? Wow!
5: That same insurance today is $533 a month. Wow! It's like nutty.
0: It is nutty. (laughs) I want to ask one thing. We only got a couple minutes left, but you talk about quality. and You've learned the art of bringing quality to any business that you put your hands on. People look at the American government. The last thing they think of is
5: quality. How do we bring some quality, common sense, and efficiency to our government? Well, that's what I've been doing for the last 35 years. I started in the auto industry. They didn't have quality there. I've been in just about every industry. They didn't have quality, and I've been bringing quality and efficiency. The major difference between Uh, President Trump and myself is the fact that I have no debt. My companies have no debt. We operate in 61 countries. I have no personal debt. My companies have the debt. And I grew up poor. Wow. So when you grow up without any money, you pay attention to we it. watch every dollar. I, I believe I can bring quality to our government. I know they say it's impossible. But we have a history of doing the impossible, don't we? Uh, uh, we do. Think I'm, about the very beginning of this country. Yep. We found, here we were, some people that didn't know how to fight. We couldn't have any guns. We had this fledgling general. And we had to fight the most magnificent army in the history of the world. And we won. And we won. Yeah. Yeah, and true. here we are today. We are going to win again.
0: That can-do spirit is what Americans are looking for. Uh, to get your book to learn about your presidential go platform, to
5: PerryJohnson.com.
0: That's easy. PerryJohnson.com.
5: Perry Let's do it. And by the way, we're going to keep America the greatest country in the history of the world.
0: That's what people are looking for. What a great honor to have you on,
6: sir. Congratulations oh, on honor. the campaign,
5: <laughs> Thanks folks.
0: So we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages.
6: Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
0: All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. A big thank you today to Congressman Scott Perry, to Nate Kane, the FBI whistleblower, brought back a lot of great memories about what he blew the whistle on. We're going to learn a lot more, I think, as history goes on about his case. We'll be following his congressional candidacy in West Virginia, so glad he could join. And, of course, Perry Johnson, the Michigan businessman and candidate for 2024 president. Glad to have all three of them on today. Hey, we had some big news today. A lot of incredible moments in the congressional hearings. One of them involving the origins of COVID-19. You heard Jim Jordan yesterday say to me that he thought that Anthony Fauci used contracts to buy silence, to buy conformity, to hide the possibility that the COVID virus came out of a lab that was being funded by U.S. tax dollars for research, dangerous research, potentially gain a function, as some people say. Jim Jordan really touched on that quite a bit today. Well, the hearing really was explosive. Jim Jordan went in, really turned things up. A lot of important revelations. Go check that out at justthenews.com. Another one that I uh, I think is really important, it was done by my colleague Nick Jeevas this morning. We talked a little bit, touched on this yesterday with Congressman Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. But here's something I think a lot of people are worried about. There are now at least three or four instances where the FBI has applied terrorism intelligence threat tags, basically a tag to a class of people claiming that they pose a terrorism or extremism, a violent extremism threat. And in those cases, we have talking about Catholics who prefer the Latin mask. I'm not sure why they pose a violent threat. The FBI said that was a mistake. Okay. School parents, all right, the FBI said that was a mistake. January 6th protesters, a lot of people have a heartburn about that. Well, we learned yesterday that there is a fourth class of Americans that have been deemed by these threat tags to be an extremist threat. And those are pro-life activists. And what makes it so amazing is that the pro-life activists tag that's being used to them actually was created for pro-abortion protesters who were threatening the justices who had ruled against Roe v. Wade. And then it gets flipped around on pro-lifers without any explanation why it poses a threat to the American people. A lot of people were scratching their heads saying, what the heck is that about? Well, one of the FBI whistleblowers described just how that went on. You can read that story under Nick Jeeves's byline on The website today, FBI whistleblowers send shockwaves with warning that threat tags are being used to target conservatives. Really important thing. The head of the disinformation office at DHS, remember the Government Disinformation Office, short-lived, got killed because of the outcry that it was an infringement on free speech. Well, Nina Jankowitz the woman who ran that temporarily, she says she's going to comply and wants to testify before a House GOP committee, actually Jim Jordan's committee. That is a uh, big development. And of course, President Donald Trump been rising at a lot of polls. Here's a big one. He's up 3X over his nearest rival in the Republican primary for New Hampshire, one of the early states, one of the bellwethers of the presidential election year. Donald Trump leading by, I think, 45 points in New Hampshire. A lot of people talking about that story today. Hey, we've got so many great partners that we have here in the Justin News family, the John Solomon Reports podcast family. They have services, they have products, they have good intentions, they've got great reputations and great trust from their consumer base. One of them, my good friends at Donors Trust. You know, a lot of economists recently reported that American philanthropy is going woke and it's predominantly now funding liberal causes. That scares a lot of people who are centrist or conservative. If you want to help counterbalance this liberal influence, here's an idea go listen to the great podcast that I listen to often called Giving Ventures. It'll give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so that individuals can prosper and thrive and enjoy freedom in America. Giving Ventures is a podcast designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities aligned with their values. It comes out twice a month from our good friends at Donors Trust. Recently, that podcast was joined by Star Parker, Founder and president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, a charity that works with lawmakers to craft policy that lifts people out of poverty. That's a great idea. Kendall Qualls was another person who joined. He's the president of Take Charge Minnesota, whose organization promotes common sense, family policy, and vocational training. And, of course, my good friend Bob Woodson. He's also been on Giving Ventures. He's the founder and president of the Woodson Center, a charity that helps revitalize low-income communities, particularly in urban America. Now, this show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund, helping conservative libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. That's a good cause. If you want to check it out, go to DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. Go give Giving Ventures a a listen. It is worth every minute you listen to. You're going to come away educated, you're going to learn about new charitable opportunities, new nonprofits aligned with your values so that maybe you can decide to give to them one day. That's the whole purpose of giving ventures. To check it out, one more time, go to donorstrust.org slash Just News. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. So glad you can join us. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to keep an eye on justthenews.com. We've got lots of breaking news over the, the next 24 hours, so be sure to be checking in often. All right, I'm going to sign off. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition.